What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Tavi Costa is a global macro analyst at Crestcat Capital. In this conversation, we discuss Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, the current U.S. economic markets, China, precious metals, how central bankers handle recessions, and what Tavi thinks is likely to occur over the next few months in the macro world. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Are you curious about cryptocurrency and you don't know where to begin? I've got a great way for you to try. You can use Stormplay, a free and fun way to start earning in exchange for your time. That's right, you don't necessarily have to make a financial investment to begin. You can simply download, register, and then discover these micro tasks that they present you that meet your interest, and then you're rewarded with these Storm Bolts. The Bolts are then converted and can be withdrawn into your favorite cryptocurrency, including the Storm Token, Ethereum, or my favorite, Bitcoin. If you go and download the Stormplay app today, you can earn cryptocurrency rewards by playing new games and trying out cool new products. It's worth a try, and it's a great way to get started. Remember, go check out Stormplay in the App Store today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I am super excited. This might be one of the podcast episodes I've looked forward to the most. Uh, I've got Tavi here with me, and uh, he's going to do his best to share kind of uh, a bunch of data and thoughts around answering the question, just what is going on in the global macro environment? So, uh, sir, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to do this. Hey, Pom, thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to the conversation as well. For sure. Um, for those that don't know, maybe let's just start with your background and kind of where you work and everything so they understand the perspective that you're coming at this from. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Brazil. I moved to the U.S. right in the midst of the whole global financial crisis. I was back then recruited to play tennis in college at Liberty University in Virginia. Um, then I moved uh, to a, a private school in St. Louis, finished up my bachelor's degree, moved to Denver, started working for Kresge Capital, been working here for about six years. And um, I mostly, my job was initially on, on most on, on the emerging markets side of things. And I kind of graduated from that and start covering more global macro uh, research. And uh, so today, along with Kevin Smith, we manage the Kresge's portfolio. Um, we have three strategies there, a global macro fund, a long short and a large cap strategy. Um, and uh, as part of the investment process, I, I build a lot of uh, macro and, and equity fundamental models and uh, that really help us to, to develop macro themes uh, that then we invest accordingly. So um, uh, it's a, a, a few things that I've done, one of them being uh, the Crescat's macro model that I think was a, a big uh, uh, change in our investment process in the, in the, in the recent years. Got it. Okay, so let's get right into uh, the meat of this, which is what's going on in the global environment. I think there's a lot of folks in crypto who um, they, they frankly hear the pro crypto or pro Bitcoin argument, um, and the part of the conversation that gets left out a lot uh, in that Bitcoin and crypto community is the global macro environment. So maybe just start with um, you know your take on. Are good things happening, bad things happening, and then any data that you can share around uh, maybe some of the warning signs that you're seeing? Yeah. So, you know, we're, we work on three major themes in our portfolio today, uh, which I think helps to understand the macro environment we're in. Uh, the number one being how we think U.S. stocks and almost like global stocks are historically overvalued in so many ways, fundamentally speaking, especially uh, public markets, but also there are a few private markets that look the same way. Uh, the second thing that we found is is, is China being that kind of uh, the center of, 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 of a lot of the, the macro imbalances, especially 
especially uh, regarding the credit levels uh, that they have built um, in since the global financial crisis. And we think that that's kind of in the process of reverting. Um, and in China being, you know, this this world leading uh, economy that helps the world to uh, to grow um, is is unlikely to continue in the following years. And the third one is is this um, uh, kind of uh, safe haven aspect of of assets that we're uh, very excited about, which is uh, in our view is end up in the, end up being uh, precious metals. But um, the whole idea really is, uh, you know, if, if you want to boil down to a, a phrase, is that there is a disconnect of, of, of several asset prices that are near historical levels or at historical levels uh, with, you know, all this debt imbalances that we see globally across government, household, business sectors. And, and, and there is a strong potential for a brutal worldwide financial downturn that we think it's likely to happen in the two to three years year horizon. Got it. And so as you look out across the various markets, maybe like, what are those major warning signs that you're seeing or data points that you're really paying attention to and and you're pointing back to and being like, look, this specifically um, gives us pause or concern? So there, there are multiple ones we, we build. We're now actually putting out a few, you know, uh, what we call a macro deck that has, you know, a deck of charts of, of, of what we see as macro signs. And I'll go through a few of them. Here in the U.S., we found initially that U.S. stocks are um, at historical levels in terms of valuations in eight fundamental factors, five of them essentially all-time highs. Um, and, and three of them are, are pretty close to it. And that's not a surprise for a lot of people, but because, uh, you know, the, the argument is, you know, stocks can get as expensive as, as they can, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're at the end of a cycle. What we start seeing is things like the credit um, markets start showing some some real signs of, of weakness, and especially on the yield curve signs. And uh, we, we calculated, there's a lot of people that try to look at yield curve inversions and, and spreads between the yield curve. And I, I think that that's very important, but uh, we try to come up with a much more comprehensive way of, of looking at the yield curve, and we calculate all the 44 possible spreads in the yield curve. We see somewhere close to 60% of the yield curve in the U.S. today is, is inverted, which is just as high as it was at the peak of the housing and the tech bubble. So that for us was a big warning sign that we built this called uh, the, the macro model, Crescat's macro model, which kind of um, uh, include 16 factors, which is, um, you know, some of them are, are economic indicators, fundamental factors, and also a few technicals. It's a very simple model, just, you know, acknowledging there's not one single factor that works throughout history to predict recessions. But if you can accumulate all of them into one and, and give a score, you know, where are we right now? So we found out that we're somewhere close to the, you know, what we see as, as very near like two percentage points away from record levels, which means record level is is obviously as high as the, the score that the closer you are from from uh, from you know being at the late uh, at the business cycle and um, this model it does did a very good job at predicting the previous recessions in the tech and the housing bubble and it really started to turn you know the, we you know this this late stage cycle in late 2015 but that in line with the yield curve inverting in a big way when we find stuff like consumer confidence being near all-time highs and record uh, low unemployment rate, which are both contrarian indicators that tend to look great at the peak of a cycle. Um, and, you know, things like 60% of the of PMIs of um, uh, manufacturing index, indices around the world right now are below 50, which is a recessionary level. Um, JP Morgan, global PMI now below 50 as well. Um, you know, and then the, the other thing really is um, uh, two-year yields. Uh, two-year yields are a must-watch and everyone's monitoring or should be, um, you know, uh, should be given a huge emphasis to that research because it's very simple and it has a perfect track record. If you look at two-year yields all the way back to the 1970s and, and you you do it in a log version and you connect the tops and it creates this resistance, multi-decade resistance line. And every time the two-year yields touches that line and starts to drop significantly, that means that we're uh, either late in the cycle or already at the beginning of a, of a, of a crisis. So 
the point here is that um, uh, what is the credit market telling you when you look at the two-year yields? Is they're telling you that there's uh, a chance that the Fed is going to start easing significantly here in the near term. And when you see that uh, at record valuations and late in the business cycle, obviously that never ends well. It's always uh, it has always been a, a, a problem for markets. Um, the other one that we found that was, you know, that I actually tweeted today, which I think it's extremely important, is the convergence of policies of 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 um, uh, monetary of, of the Federal Reserve versus the ECB, and there it's it's an interesting. You can calculate that in different ways. One way we found is looking at the yields. If you can, if you just calculate the spread of U.S. five-year yield versus the German five-year five-year yield, you can see that they tend to converge as you as you get very late in the business cycle. And it's again another macro sign here, flashing uh, you know warning signal again. Um, and you know we're now breaking down from a multi-year trend line, and it's you know, it's very scary. It's another one. Not, not, not to mention the other things like you know those divergences that we're seeing in in U.S. stocks versus the rest of the world index, or, or small cap stocks, or or transports, or this copper. Uh, copper is diverging from U.S. stocks by over thirty five percent. So. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and it's just incredible to us how, how disconnected asset prices are. And we think it's a huge opportunity right now to be, you know, one way you can do a trade here is 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 that we like a lot is being long precious metals and short stocks. And that ratio just started to work now. And uh, we think it's there's a huge opportunity for that to to move up in the upper way much, much further here. Got it. And, and so... Maybe let's go to the inverted uh, yield curve because I think a lot of people hear that, but they don't actually understand what that means. Maybe can you explain what that means and, and why it's so significant? Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, explanations for that. Well, first of all, uh, the the most famous one is looking at the ten year yields versus the two year yields, um, and idea being well, first, um, you know, Fed tends to hike interest rates, um, kind of uh, approaching the late stages of the cycle here, which happened in the last two years or so. And as that happens, the short, um, uh, the front end of the curve starts rising, and and therefore, uh, you know, starts to cause the inversion. The second thing you start seeing is that people uh, or investors in the credit markets, we tend to be sort of a bellwether for stocks and the economy. Especially on the long end of the curve, the ten-year yields, the thirty-year yields, they start to lower or fall apart because um, uh, investors are just, uh, you know, searching for for a safe haven and, and they're concerned about the, you know, the long-term um, uh, conditions of of the economy. So you start seeing that you can see the the results of, you know, either long-term rates start dropping and then and then you can see that uh, the the front end of the curve starts rising a little bit and that causes the inversion. The one thing we haven't found yet is is this inversion in the 10 versus twos, which is one of the most popular. And people, you know, and that that really was was a flaw in in in, in the bearish thesis that we had. And, and for me, that was will cause creating this this more comprehensive research of looking at you know all possible spreads in the yield curve and how many of them are inverted. But you know, there are so many ways you can look at inversions. Other, and there's a very interesting research from Professor Campbell Harvey, um, a Duke finance professor, and he was looking at ten-year yields versus three-month yields and five-year yields versus three-month yields. And then when when they invert for a full quarter, in other words, ninety days of of inversion, it tends to lead to a economic crisis in 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 twelve to eighteen months. That has a perfect track record as well. We're now over one hundred and twenty, I believe, one hundred and twenty one days of 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 that the five year versus three month yield is inverted today. We put out chart on this; is very interesting. Every time that that happens, we've seen a recession follow. So, you know, those are all, you know, important parts of, of, of the yield curve that I think, you know, everyone should be, should be paying attention to. And the other argument we hear a lot is that, okay, well, yield, yield curve inversions happen and then it takes another one or two years until uh, a recession really materializes itself. And that's not true at all. People are just using one sample here, which is 08 or really 06 when that inverted. And, and it took another one or two years until things really start manifesting itself. But if you look back in 2000, uh, 2000, the inversion happened exactly, precisely at the time when 
when the markets start falling apart. The same thing happened in the 70s. You know, so there are uh, other years or other periods of in history that the yield curve tends to take a little longer to to uh, to really uh, um, uh, trigger a recession. But in other times that it doesn't it actually, you know, it's it's actually precisely at the same time. And there was one time in history that the yield curve inversion happened uh, 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 even even I mean, you know it's uh, right during the, the period of, uh, of of a bear market rally which was in the early 70s as well which we thought that we were in this in the beginning of the year um, so you know there there's several uh, ways of looking at a yield curve it's it's obviously a problem and I think ignoring that is at your own cost uh, but um, you know we're you know we see this as, as an issue you know this if you look back inversions tend to be very positive positive for, for safe haven and, and precious metals, especially. Uh, every time you have an inversion in the yield curve, uh, you start seeing gold to S&P 500 ratio to rise. We've seen that throughout history, which I think is the best trade. Why? Because you don't know. I don't have a crystal ball when U.S. stocks are going are gonna to peak. Um, but what I do know is that gold to S&P 500 ratio starts to rise, especially in 06. So 06, the inversion happened. The recession didn't happen until, you know, 08, 07, late 07. So, you know, but if you're long this ratio, you actually make money uh, while waiting for the recession. So those are, you know, a few instruments you, uh, one could use as a way of, 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 of finding opportunities out there. Got it. And, and so when we look at this and we say, let, let's believe the indicators, right? You know, the inverted yield curve, et cetera. And we say, you know, there is some sort of downturn that is on the horizon. How do you think about evaluating the severity of a downturn, right? So, so it's one thing just to say, uh, we've been in one of the longest bull markets, if not the longest bull market uh, in history. Things just continue to look like they're going up and to the right, but that's going to change at some point. Okay, we think it's on the you know short horizon. Is that a 10% drop, 20, 80, like we saw you know, kind of in the, in the global financial crisis? Like, what, what do you see there? Or how do you measure and think about that? Yeah, um, you know, Howard Marks uh, did a great job at uh, describing this, but talking about how markets tend to move like a pendulum. In other words, um, if we're expecting valuations to go back to normal levels, especially in public markets, which is a more uh, a measurable way of, 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 of looking at quantifying where we are, uh, well, right now, uh, to go back to the medium levels of S and P 500, um, you know, fundamental uh, factors, you would go back, uh, let's say, 40 percent or so um, contraction in S and P to see in prices to see uh, we go back to normal levels. But you know, as we know throughout history, and how our markets did a great job at this, as I said, is is that it tends to move like a pendulum. In other words, it tends to move farther than than the median level. Um, so you know, if if you would you know if if you would believe in that and believe that history uh, it tends to repeat itself, uh, we're likely to see uh, further than a forty percent decline in, in U.S. stocks um, to go back to normal levels. And I think I think that uh, once it reaches the the forty to forty five percent level, if if it does happen, and you know, and we're you know managing money and we're seeing this um, um, happening, I think that that would be a time to start uh, looking at taking the other side of the trade. Right now, we're not even close to that. We're on the other side of it still. And you know, when I see you know, and 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 bear markets, they you know they have phases. Um, you have to watch out when you have like a twenty twenty five even thirty percent drop uh, you have to take some of the table and, and and wait for for a little bounce which happens quite a lot the bear market rallies um, sometimes at least in the last recessions we've seen kind of a the bear market kind of broke down in three phases. So there's a, a first lag of the bear market, a 20 to a 25% decline, and the markets kind of retrace back like 15% and it falls again. And the third part of the bear market tends to be the the, mo- the most severe that really, you know, everyone panics. And, and that's the time when you want to start taking off your or covering your shorts and start taking other positions. And everyone's talking about recession that we're never uh, going to see asset prices rising again. That's exactly the time to do the opposite. 
But um, we're not seeing that yet. We're way far away. I mean, we're if you looked at you know just the global stocks in general, or or just the rest of the world. The rest of the world is essentially already in a not. I wouldn't say, uh, and maybe it's going to be proven in a few years if the bear market really started. But I think the bear market started for the rest of the world. The U.S. You know, it's still obviously all time highs, and um, we're seeing a few you know a few things like like I mentioned, you know, transports and small caps already diverging from the S and P. Uh, which I think already started to show some cracks that that this that this recession is 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 really close to to starting here, uh, a lot closer than a lot of people think. I would say. Got it. And, and so when this occurs, you know, both from a historical perspective and also kind of what you're seeing right now, is this something where we see the recession kind of kickstart in a single? Uh, geography or jurisdiction, and then there's kind of like a domino effect around the world. Does it all happen at once? Like, like what is your kind of expectation uh, um, or belief as to how it actually uh, sequentially happens? That's a good question because we've been so far in this conversation focusing more on the U.S., but we look back in China. Um, you know, we think that that's you know China is is already having huge issues. I mean, it's a it's a probably the largest credit bubble we've seen in history. It's it's a you know it's it's a forty forty five trillion dollar banking system on balance sheet assets with another forty five or so trillion dollars of off balance sheet assets. Um, you know, so in absolute terms and relative to GDP terms, it's just a massive bubble. And, you know, we're seeing already this not yet or, you know, in the official numbers, I want to be very, it's perhaps not official uh, or, or, or true, um, but, but, you know, the GDP numbers are still going higher, obviously, but we see, you know, significant uh, um, uh, changes of, let's say, you know, the fourth quarter of 2018, the median stock price in China was down 40%. I don't know in history, any other country that had a, you know, a, a, its stock market declining in, in, in such a severe way, and that didn't cause a recession. Um, but hey, you know, China is still showing, you know, that everything is, 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 mostly fine and they're not yet in a recession. Obviously, you know, China was responsible for over 50% of GDP growth uh, in the world um, since the global financial crisis. If we're seeing a reversing path of, of that, you know, obviously we think that the global markets are going to be in trouble. So um, I think that, you know, that's that's a one part of the of the puzzle that is very important is China, right? China being this this massive credit bubble that is about to burst. And what we've been wrong about this is that it didn't burst at all at once. It's bursting slowly, but surely. Um, and, you know, you're seeing the other cracks in places like Canada and Australia. Look at Canadian housing prices or Australian housing prices is starting to to uh, to decelerate or decline, depending on the area, which you know are countries that had you know a significant um, um, uh, the, the, most of the capital outflows from China have been exacerbating house prices in places like Australia and Canada and also Hong Kong. Um, so we t- when we talk about yield curve inversions, for instance, in the U.S., uh, as as was alluding to, which is a big deal, this is not only a problem in the U.S., it's a problem globally. Hong Kong yield curve is close to 80% inverted today. Um, Canada is close to 70% inverted today. So, you know, we're seeing issues all over the world. Uh, today, about 17 economies have their um, their 30-year yields lower than overnight rates in the U.S. I mean, every time we've had this in history, we had a global recession, a global turmoil. Uh, we're now seeing political issues in places like China, especially Hong Kong. Um, I also don't know any time in history, and I'm from Brazil, and I had a situation very similar in 2014 um, when Dilma Rousseff was 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 uh, impeached. Um, what happened with the currency? The currency, you know, was was demolished. Uh, it declined a ton. Sure, U.S. stocks went up at a cost. Uh, I'm sorry, not U.S. stocks. Um, uh, uh, Brazilian stocks went up, but at a cost. The currency got uh, in in serious trouble. Argentina was the same problem. So there are several ways. And, and, and when it manifests itself, obviously, every time the U.S. Catch, catches a cold here, uh, the rest of the world is, is in trouble. Um, so, you know, we know that the U.S. being this historical, and when I'm talking about historic, I'm talking about for decades, the U.S. has been kind of lifting the world economy for a long time. Um, and, you know, if we're, if we're very pessimistic in, in, in this in the domestic market here, uh, we obviously think that that's going to have serious consequences to the rest of the world. 
world. But China is a big one. And now we're seeing this sort of a huge fight between the U.S. and China politically or geopolitically speaking, uh, which, you know, just also accelerates the whole problem. Um, you know, there's no way we're going to see any, in my opinion, uh, we're going to see any any significant uh, deal agreement between the two countries that will, you know, become prosperous for the whole world. I mean, China once uh, it, it still is a, a, an economy that depends on 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 exporting um, goods. I mean, that's the, that's the real true. Um, and when people say no, it's 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 kind of uh, moving away from that economic model. Well, look at retail sales and and car sales and so forth. Everything is a or either a, you know a fifteen year lows or or you know or or, or plunging. Um, so you know we're not seeing that transition at all. So I think that that's you know the puzzle really is uh, U.S. is in, in, in my opinion in, in trouble here. Uh, we're overdue for recession. Uh, we have all those warning signals domestically. Globally, we're seeing issues as well. So what are the places that are most um, you know perhaps overvalued or, or places that look uh, more 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 troubling? Uh, I think there are you know Australian banks, Canadian banks, uh, some Hong Kong and Chinese ADRs. They are still all time all time highs. I'm not talking about the domestic companies. They're all in uh, not domestic, but the companies that the, the trade in the A listed shares and and, and so forth. I'm talking about the ADRs, you know the Babas, Alibabas of the world, um, is still you know near record levels. So, you know, I think that that's all going to, unfortunately, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's part of cycles. It's part of business cycles. It's not that I'm a, a perma bear or anything like that. I just think that we're overdue for, for a downturn in the economy and, um, and then things are going to look bright again. And, and it's going to be a great time for you to be a, a long investor. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so as we look out um, outside the U.S., right, so China specifically, one of the data points that I heard recently uh, and it just blew my mind was, so globally, the debt level is three times that of GDP. In mm-hmm. China, if I remember the data correctly, it's 150% of China's GDP. And, and it just blew my mind that compared to the US, et cetera, China's debt level was so high as a percentage of GDP. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh... Uh, just the banking system is is for me. Um, you know, I I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. I mean, it's over three hundred percent of GDP. Just the growth in banking assets from the global financial crisis is close to like four hundred percent in normalized terms. I mean, we've haven't seen anything like that yet, um, and it completely dwarfs places like Japan, ECB, or just the eurozone, um, the U.S., Canada. I mean, it's it's really a, a big problem. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see a few things there, you know, this uh, also this divergence in monetary policies of the PBOC, this Chinese central bank versus the Fed is a big deal. Uh, you can see that by calculating the spread between the federal funds rate versus um, the Shiba rate, overnight rate. And you can see that that spread is at, at the highest at, at the highest level since the global financial crisis. In, in other words, that the Fed funds rate is, is a little bit too high relative to the Shiba rates. And remember, they have a pack currency system, right? So they're supposed to be matching the, the monetary policy very closely, and they're not being able to do that. And why is that? We think that that's because they're not able to raise rates significantly. Otherwise, the whole thing is going to collapse. Um, they can't tighten too much. If they tighten too much, uh, things fall apart. We've seen that. We've seen many times when they do that, that uh, it causes you know a, a, a bankruptcies or or just defaults of, of of major banks in China. We've we've seen things like that before in the last three to five years. So um, uh, one of the major ones was in 2015. Uh, when you know when when there was a mini devaluation of the the Chinese currency, the truth of the matter is that we don't know as nec- nobody knows how it's going to play out necessarily. But one thing we know is that if you look back in history, and that's why I like precious metals specifically, is because it has a long term of, of of history here that you can look at. Um, gold price, sure, some some periods of of of, uh, of uh, emerging markets uh, credit bust, you can see you know. Uh, a, ch- a currency devaluing significantly versus the dollar. Some others you see not that you see. You no, know, a currency stays at the same place, but equity markets take a fall, like the Asian crisis in Hong Kong. The currency didn't didn't fall at all. But what happened was sixty percent decline in Hong Kong um, stock prices. So we don't know which one is going to fall apart, right? Sometimes it's both. It's a 
like what we call the twin crisis. The one thing that we found, the pattern that happens throughout history is that gold prices in local currency terms tend to rise. And when people tell me, hey, gold has not worked for the last five years or so, it hasn't worked in dollar terms. Uh, looked at you know gold and, um, in, in, in Brazilian real or Argentinian peso or Venezuela, Venezuelan peso, um, in all those, those places, gold have been in, in a, a great performer. Uh, why? Because you had issues politically and economically in those places. China, if you looked at gold in, in remembi terms, it's it's kind of starting to break out, which is obviously a very important sign. Um, you know, and we're very long that 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 security as well. Gold in, in remembi terms is one of our trades. Um, I think that that's uh, that's one you know likely uh, uh, development in, in, in markets in the next two to three years as well as we've seen. If you looked in gold in, in remembi terms, it tends to rise, and there was a situation in um, 1993 when the remembi, the value close to, it lost one third of its value in one day, and and, and it was December 31st of uh, of of 1993. And, um, and and we're not calling for a one-day devaluation. I'm just saying that you know that has ha- has happened in, in history many times in in China. China for the last you know since the 1900s has um, changed its uh, resetted its monetary um, system. In other words, has created a different currency nine other times. Wait, why is this time different? Uh, you know now on top of that we have this huge credit imbalance. So I think that, you know, that, you know, when you couple that with all those issues that I was talking about, I think that we're very close to a devaluation of, uh, of the yuan or a, a rise in gold prices in remembi terms. Got it. And, and so when you think about these safe haven assets, I think the first thing is let, let's, you know, kind of go over how historically have the safe haven assets performed in these market downturns, and then moving forward, what, what do you think is kind of their role in uh, in, in this market downturn that uh, that it seems to be on the horizon? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So there, you know, if you looked at gold, for instance, which one that you can go back in history, a long time. There are times when uh, um, gold may not perform as well as a safe haven, even though it doesn't get demolished. But I mean, sometimes, like in October of 08, if I believe I'm right on this date, uh, there was a significant decline in gold prices that then, you know, as the Fed started to ease even further and doing a QE1, QE2, and we saw gold and silver going parabolic at the time, you know, which I think it's a very, you know, we could be in a similar scenario here. Um, so I think that, you know, gold itself is is an interesting uh, um, asset uh, because, you know, it, it, it can get hurt over time as well during the recession, especially gold mining stocks. Now, you know, that's why I, I, I like a lot the ratio of gold to S&P 500 ratio is, is, is key is because that's probably one of the most reliable ones that we've, we've had in history that tend to, uh, to do really well uh, when, when, when we see crisis. Um, now, you know, there, you know, right now we're not seeing, obviously, there's a lot of people link back gold with inflation, for instance. Uh, I think inflation will be just a cherry on top of the whole thesis of precious metals and, and safe haven stocks um, like, like, you know, mining stocks in general. But, you know, one thing that you should look at, I think, uh, or everyone should look at is the two-year yields, as I said, when they drop. But the nominal rates, when they drop, uh, it causes real yields to drop as well. And if you look at real yields in an inverted version versus gold prices, they follow each other very closely. And for instance, the five-year yield, uh, real yield in the U.S. in an inverted version, if, if, you, if you looked at that chart, it just broke out from a downward trend, uh, which, you know, it would give another support for gold prices to continue to rise as well. So I think that that's, you know, gold here is, is as historically has done a, a great job of, 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 of storing value. Um, and, uh, I, you know, what I like about this whole uh, Bitcoin uh, idea, cryptocurrencies in general, is, is obviously uh, we, you know, we have similar views in terms of it's very similar ideologies in terms of uh, both of us, you know, the, 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 the mining, the gold bug mentality and the crypto mentality are both desperate for, for a better solution than what we have in terms of fiat currency that is backed by, you know, monetary systems that are uh, completely backed by a corrupted and crooked um, um, uh, governments. And, you know, so it's kind of, a, um, I, I agree 100% with that. The only the reason I like gold more is just because gold has uh, more history and I can really rely on that. 
my, but um, so I think that that's all. No, I'm I'm very happy to see more people um, uh, getting behind this this thesis that that governments are shouldn't be running uh, you know global fiat anymore, um, uh, and we should maybe uh, be searching for a, another alternative for that. Um, so. I think that's real. The 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 you know the the whole idea of like gold, you know, let's like a gold standard, for instance. It's a it's a it's a very interesting thesis. All right, uh, the whole point of that is is to is to bring back discipline for governments. You know, look at how much money we've been printing and 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 how much debt we've 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 got into here in the U.S. and globally. I mean, it's insane. I did a research that since the 1970s, uh, so since the you know the 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 gold standards, we left the gold standards in 1971. Um, there was only one presidential term that I was able to grow G, real GDP growth net of 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 government debt. I mean, for me, that's the algorithm of a good government, right? Okay, you're going to grow uh, the economy, sure, grow the economy, but doesn't grow. But but at the same time, please don't, don't grow debt. Uh, we've <laughs> I grew up in Brazil, and that's been the problem the entire my entire life, just watching that. And then when I looked at the U.S., it's the same problem. We've only had one presidential, and I don't want to get political on this at all. This is very apolitical statement. The point is, we lost discipline. We lost our minds. <laughs> We're just printing money and creating more and more debt. At what point are we going to see, um, you know, currencies um, losing, you know, a destruction of value of, of 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 fiat currencies? I think we're getting very close to, it, especially because people are, are starting to really uh, cause this disbelief of central banks in general, especially from the the, the crypto um, um, community. I mean, I like that a lot. I sympathize with that idea a lot. Got it. And, and so, you know, look, I, I, I have said this before, but I really do think that folks who are interested in gold and precious metals uh, tend to have drastic overlap with people who are excited about uh, Bitcoin because they they tend to agree on a lot of the structural challenges and, and frankly, failures of the legacy uh, financial system. Um, and as part of that, you know, one of the things that um, I think a lot about is there's two separate components to the legacy financial system that really stick out in my mind. There is the central banks and governments, and then there are the financial institutions, right? The for-profit mm-hmm. banks, the financial service companies, et cetera. One of the things that has recently uh, come about is uh, pressure on the independence of those central banks, right? So we see in Turkey, for example, the removal um, of the uh, the central bank, right? Uh, the central banker, and they replace him. Uh, here in the U.S., we see the president um, really kind of pressuring uh, the Federal Reserve and, and chairman, etc. And then something caught my eye recently on Twitter, where uh, there was an economist. I think his name is uh, Art Laffer, um, who, who came out and said, "Well." Maybe the idea of the independence of the Federal Reserve shouldn't actually be in practice, right? Maybe it actually is the government and the president who should be in charge of um, kind of monetary policy decisions, et cetera. And the headline kind of took me back, right? It almost felt like uh, that idea of independence of the Federal Reserve is like a sacred uh, cow to some degree. But then I read into his argument, what he basically says is, look, the policy decisions of uh, the non-economic elements of government are all under the control of the president and the government. So why would this be any different, right? Um, and the reason why I'm asking this question, I want your opinion on it, is because then I want to talk about what central bankers can do, what the tools they have when we hit these market downturns. But first, just kind of comment on how you think about central bank independence versus maybe some other uh, of these theories or, or uh, proposals that are now surfacing um, given the current environment. Yeah, I, I just um, I'm a big fan of, um, of of discipline and why I like um, some sort of gold standard or you know a similar idea to that in which it would force um, governments and and central banks to not inter- intervene too much in, in in equity markets or not at all. Why do we need intervention on that? Um, I think as we soften uh, cycles and or, or try to soften cycles, we end up making bubbles more extreme. Um, we've seen now, I mean, literally almost every asset class is at all time highs, um, you know, aside from precious metals and other things. But it's it's insane. Um, you know, at some point, uh, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to see something very bad here. Um, I think that governments, the problem of governments and not so much of central banks, I think yet, but I think that. 
that can be transferred to central banks too. But mainly, I would just want to make the point that mainly governments and presidential or presidents in general, that it's a political interest, right? Everyone is running for the four years and they want to do the best they can to not let the whole thing collapse in four years. And, and, and it doesn't really matter. We're not here running for the long term. We're running for the four years. Obviously, when you see policies like this, you know, like, for instance, forcing the central bank here now, the Federal Reserve, to uh, mocking the Federal Reserve to, to drop interest rates. I mean, why are we dropping interest rates? Um, I, don't, I don't understand that at all. Um, I think that that's, um, that's just going to exacerbate the problem. But uh, um, so, in terms of uh, of, of having a, a more um, a more independent version of, of of central banks, I personally I'm on the camp of uh, we don't even need that. We don't even need to uh, subscribe to somebody else's view in terms of uh, who who is out there who has any crystal ball to understand what's you know what's the right decision to make. Obviously, as a money manager. Uh, and putting my political um, views aside, which I'm not very actually uh, opinionated on that, um, I, I you know I I have to be um, I have to think about what are the opportunities of 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 what we're seeing in terms of you know reducing interest rates and and possibility of uh, of reversing this this pattern of 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 depleting assets of of the Federal Reserve and perhaps start printing money again. If we start seeing things like that, I, I can't see a reason why precious metals would not be, you know, your best um, um, asset to uh, to perform in a situation like that. Throughout history, it has been so. Why wouldn't be today? Uh, and then when you put that together with being, you know, the, the safe haven aspect of, of of precious metals in terms of that, um, you know, then it makes absolutely sense of of of, of being long things like that. So. Um, I hope I answer your question, but I'm not a. I'm not a. a for some reason, I, I know I, I'm not a, a big fan of, uh, of of intervention at all of of, of markets, and especially when I know of uh, of you know there's no skin in the game for 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 a president, right? What's their skin in the game is to get reelected. So there's no skin in the game in terms of uh, of of improving the the the, the prosperity of, of the economy and over the long term. Uh, all they want to do is is to make things better for the short term, and and most of those policies are you know short driven policies are end up you know just just making this what we call or not us uh, Jesse Felder did a great job of uh, calling this the the everything bubble. I mean it, it's it's everything, but I'm you know I'm not overly pessimistic about everything. I'm just saying there's obviously uh, we reached extreme levels of valuations all over the world, and um, at some point that's going to matter, and, and perhaps we're getting close to it. Got it. And, and so, uh, as we enter into market downturns, historically central banks have really had two tools, right? They've been able to cut rates, and uh, then they introduce quantitative easing. Uh, maybe comment a little bit on, uh, you know, do you think that that's the two tools that they'll fall back on uh, if there is this market downturn um, in the short term? Uh, and then are they going to be effective or do you see other tools maybe entering into uh, what central banks can do? That's a good question. So, you know, we've heard a lot of, uh, of our argument or counter arguments to our thesis that, you know, I think you guys are wrong because we're living in a different world and we're going to see money printing and, um, you know, into another uh, level uh, that we saw in back then. And, and that's going to cause markets to go up. But I want to remind everyone, if you look back in, in aggregate all Central banks balance sheet back in uh, in 20, uh, 2005 or so, right at uh, 2006, all the way to like mid 2008, we printed close to over a trillion dollars of, of assets uh, back then or of, of money at the time. And um, so, you know, that did not prevent the whole global financial crisis to, to really started to unfold. Um, and then as, as we got into the crisis, and this is not including the, the first QE from the Fed, as we start really getting into the crisis, uh, we printed over, you know, close to $3 trillion from the, the peak of the bubble from the bottom of, 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 of the, the crash. Um, and, you know, that's quite interesting to see how, you know, how um, money printing, you know, when cycles turn, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's, in my view, impossible to or inevitable to, uh, um, to, to really control it. So in terms of interest rates, cut, interest rate cuts, um, you know, it's it, it's another part of the argument of uh, well, they're going to start you know cutting rates, and we're you know we're it, it's going to cause um, valuations to uh, you know stocks to go parabolic or whatever. 
first of all, stocks have already reached uh, you know extreme levels in almost any way you can look at um, of valuations. So um, you know, we're calling for you know another. Uh, do you want to squeeze this other part of the of of the juice here? I, I think it's extremely risky to do that, but you know some people were doing it. Um, the one other point that I want to point out here is that. Remember, January of 2001 and July of 2007 were both the last times that we saw interest rate cuts by the Federal Reserve. Both of them were pretty much at the peak of the tech in the housing bubble. And we're seeing now, again, 100% probability. Uh, and we're probably going to see interest rate cuts here coming up soon. Um, you know, and that's, you know, that's all alarming. That's all alarming. That's just, you know, the Jay Powell just said it today. I mean, it's, uh, we're, you know, it's obviously a, um, a, an acknowledgement that there's weakness in, in the economy that is, you know, is probably going to see a, a further uh, problems um, happening. The other thing that I think it's um, in terms of uh, more of uh, different alternatives of policies, and I don't know exactly what could be, um, but it's it's the problem of inversions. Inversions or uh, yield curve inversions is a big problem, and I you know I suspect that they're they're going to have to be some sort of policy to uh, you know cutting rates is one of them to uh, to reduce the amount of inversions that we see in the yield curve today, and um, and and that's that's the scary part you know because when you look at the yield curve inversions, especially of those arguments of people that say. You know, yield curve inversions matter, but when inverts to take one or two years until something materializes itself, okay, well, go back in those two periods and see when the crisis really start to uh, fall apart. It was actually when yield curve inversions are not, you know, increasing. They're starting to decrease. That's the time when when the front end of the curve starts to uh um, uh, to to uh, to not move down as much as it was before, and that causes the yield curve inversion to steepen a little bit. The steepening of the yield curve is is you know is a, is is another thing that tends to happen. Depending on the case here in history, is is the one thing that tends to uh, to lead to uh, to uh, to a crash. Um, so you know I've I, you know I'm I'm on the camp that I don't believe that there's this time is different that we're gonna. Uh, central banks will be able to prevent the business cycle from turning, um, and uh, and I you know obviously have history on my, my side in terms of that. Um, but you know policies are getting more and more extreme as as we uh, as uh, you know since the eighties or so. Just compare the eighties uh, policies versus today. I mean it's insane. Um, you know we're we're taking to another level, and I don't suspect that we're going to take it to a new level now. Uh, and why I think that you know uh, precious metals are in a very interesting position here. It's a very beginning of a move, in my opinion, on gold and silver and things like that. Got it. And and so you know. Part of this is uh, if there is things like interest rate cuts and um, the printing of money. One, uh, you know, if you listen to like a Ray Dalio, for example, uh, there's talk of modern monetary theory, right? And I think his is uh, whether you like it or not, it's inevitable we're going to go there. Maybe just comment a little bit on um, how mm-hmm. you see uh, MMT interacting or intersecting with some sort of uh, global macro event on the downside. I think Jim Grant did a great job explaining some similar type of um, campaign or whatever you call that. Um, the theory that was uh, heating up at the time, I think was in the late uh, or early 40s or so. Um, and um the idea being that you know that kind of uh, that kind of uh, theory uh, tends to uh, to to come in every you know during the, you know during their the century. This is not the first time we're seeing things like that. That people start saying we're never going to see inflation again. Uh, that you know that this is a we're we're going to be okay not having discipline and money. You know, money printing is not a problem and debt is not a problem at all. But um, you know, I think that that's all. Uh, at some point, that's all gonna, in my opinion, is is gonna be have to translate into inflation. I believe that the technological moves are obviously very deflationary, positive deflationary for the rest of the world. But at the some point, I think that that's going to have to translate into inflation, especially when you looked at just uh, you know centuries of, of history of, of of inflationary forces as they come and go, and we haven't had one in a while. 
So at some point, I'm not calling for inflation in the next two to three years. I'm just saying at some point, we're going to have to see it. That's that's what you know, history has shown us that that's what, what happens. And um, so at some point, you know, guys like Gunlatch are going to be right in terms of interest rates are going to start rising. And, uh, and that would be the worst. That's what worries me the most is the fact that, you know, it's, it's, if we have an inflationary crisis like 1974 or so, those are brutal. There's almost no place to hide. Um, you know, you, you're you're smart enough to so you're gonna go and, and buy some smart safe haven assets. But some people are gonna be buying bonds and and you know and and they're gonna be in trouble. Uh, uh, you know, bonds are not your <laughs> your safe asset if if there is an environment such an environment like this. So um, right now it's been working great. We also have some bonds in our portfolio, but we know that at some point this thing is going to reverse. It's also a, some um, some sort of a bubble uh, driven by central banks. The only difference is that central banks are uh, you know are likely to print more money and and buy more bonds, and that's going to drive yields lower. That's the only difference of uh, of those times. But um, at some point when we start seeing the eyes of inflation, they're not going to be able to do that again. They're not going to be able to drop rates anymore. And the whole thing, it's going to be a, you know, it's, it's going to be a very different macro scenario. That's, you know, you're going to have to, uh, you know, housing market, how's that going to look like if we have interest rates or mortgage rates a lot higher than they are today? Um, you know, businesses and private equity, uh, especially businesses have been relying on on very cheap source of capital today. And, you know, would Uber exist in the 70s? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, or would companies be able to be running with so-called zombie companies uh, that don't make any money um, and be able to be uh, surviving for a long time? I don't think they would survive the 70s. I'm not saying Uber itself, but several companies that are out there today. So I think that the money... Um, the uh, monetary uh, th- uh, theory is 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 um, is is another one of those that starts to rise. Uh, you know, at this this time of uh, of of a cycle. Not necessarily calling the the end of the cycle or anything like that, but it's it's a pretty normal thing that happens throughout history of of people that have lost their minds in terms of of what's the right policy. The one thing I want to say that I thought was interesting because I come from a uh, a country that is uh, uh, a very um, it, it's been very socialist for a long time, and I think it's interesting. It's nothing political at all. It's just an interesting topic uh, when you look at, for instance, uh, what we're hearing about sort of a, a social dividend, uh, if you will. Of of some uh, candidates now talking about giving away, let's say, a thousand dollars to every um, every citizen or a citizen at a certain level of uh, on the tax bracket should receive a, a dividend from the government to uh, to be able to spend money. You know those sorts of policies in in you know uh, as we've seen throughout history, especially in emerging markets, they always translate into inflation in the short term. What do you think people are going to do? What's what do you think it's going to happen if if you give a thousand dollars on a monthly basis to everyone? Everyone's going to spend money, sure, but that's going to cause prices in general to rise. And you know if we do have, I think we're playing with fire, in my opinion, politically, um, given where we are in in the economic cycle. If we do have a situation like that, um, I think that we could see inflation rising. That could be a real problem. I think people have no idea, you know, that, that goes to show how people completely forgot, um, you know, the, 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 how the fears of inflation, um, and they, they lack that, you know, this, this whole, uh, uh, the millennials, I'm a millennial. Um, they, my generation doesn't know what inflation is unless you come from Brazil. I've seen inflation. I know how that works. I know my parents trying to grow a business and they can, you know, you can't find credit because, you know, credit and, and just raising capital in general is too expensive. That's not the case in the U.S., um, but you know, I, I you know I'm a believer that things come and go, and you know, and perhaps we're uh, we could be getting close to something here. Got it. Let's um let, let's wrap up here, but before we go, uh, just your thoughts on um, Bitcoin and gold, right? I think a lot of people uh, previously and, and most likely inaccurately have assumed that it's a binary outcome, uh, but maybe you actually agree with them. How do you see the relationship between the two assets uh, today and then maybe in the future if, uh, if a lot of what we've talked about today becomes reality? First of all, to start, when I talk about Bitcoin cryptocurrencies, I, I, I have to say that I'm not uh, the most knowledgeable guy in terms of the technology of, 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 of it. 
And, um, and I think that uh, I, I love the fact, as I said, of, of both looking for an alternative of fiat currency. And I think that obviously gold, as somebody else actually uh, mentioned, is uh, gold being the father of, of, of this idea. And I, I'm a big believer in that. I just don't believe that, uh, you know, this whole theory of, of, of drop gold and, and all that, it's, you know, it's, and, and revolting against uh, precious metals in general. I don't think it's a smart idea. I think we have bigger uh, fish to fry out there. <laughs> but um, um, in, in my view of, of, of Bitcoin, what I, um, I think that it's, it's quite interesting, the movement you see, in special, I, I, I follow very closely how Bitcoin has kind of become this, this, this kind of a, a higher uh, a beta uh, version of, of gold. It's, it's moving higher, obviously, smaller market cap. So it's kind of like, oh, if you're going to be long stocks, well, if, if you're very bullish on stocks, you think that, you know, most times the small cap stocks might outperform um, uh, the, the large cap stocks. The same idea here with Bitcoin and, and gold in terms of that. But um I think that uh, I have very, I appreciate a lot the the grow the the gold um, a history of of its credibility and um, you know it go, goes back centuries and uh, we, we, that's for me is is I think that uh, uh, you know I, I wish uh, some of the the, the crypto uh, people with with appreciate more because uh, it's the same idea really now one thing that I think Bitcoin uh, especially Bitcoin um, uh, has done a, an incredible job at is is to serve as a, as a vehicle for uh, for places like you know they have you know a very uh, uh, very commonest places like China or, or Venezuela and helping people to be able to to uh, get their money out of those places and becoming a, a, a store uh, a storage of value for for those for those citizens that don't have an option to get their money out of those countries. Um, I think that that's, you know, that served a better purpose than gold, uh, personally. And, and um, when I saw Bitcoin starting to move higher, I thought initially was, uh, and, and I'm probably wrong on that, but I thought initially was something related to uh, to uh, the, the problems in China really start, um, and, you know, brewing. But um, um, no, it seems to be a, a, a real move. It seems to be that the cryptocurrencies have a, a fundamental reason to be rising. Um I personally don't hold Bitcoin and uh, people might hate the fact that I said that. Uh, and that's just because I have a principle, uh, which is, you know, unfortunately, if I don't fully understand something, I, I, I just don't, um, I, I just don't invest in it. But I, I'm, trust me, I am trying to uh, understand it because if, if it is a real move like gold is, I think we're in the early stages of it. So, um, um, yeah, I think those are my, my my initial thoughts. But you know, I I, I think gold in general is is attractive uh, in any way you look at. One important way that you can see that is just looking at the relationship of gold versus things like um, you know like Russell three thousand, like the broad the broad uh, um, index for for stocks in general. Russell three thousand and like silver, the high beta version of gold, which is perhaps Bitcoin now. I don't know. But if you looked at that ratio, that just retested the two thousand. Crazy, insane valuations we saw in the tech bubble, and we're now kind of retesting those levels and starting to drop again. Now, there's so many ways you can look at commodities versus the S and P 500 ratio, commodities index by the Goldman Sachs index, and you can see there are close to a 50 year you know lows of of that ratio, way below the median of that. So I think commodities are here for a run, and obviously, um, Bitcoin seems a, a, a an interesting idea as well. I love it, man. Look, I, I think that you are uh, incredibly reasonable and, and frankly can articulate the, uh, the, the advantages and disadvantages of, uh, you know, not only the, uh, the current economy and environment, but also uh, these safe haven assets um, and, uh, and what many would think are in some cases even speculative assets. But uh, it, it is um, it's always prudent, I think, to, to share the thoughts of like, look, if you don't understand it, don't invest in it. Right. And then uh, all the kind of the normal uh, disclaimers around uh, folks shouldn't be putting in more money than they could lose or that they could uh, afford to lose, et cetera. So, so I think that it is um, it's this weird balance between uh, what's going on and understanding what's going on is uh, the first step. The second step is then what do you do about it, right? Especially if you're trying to protect your wealth or, or grow your wealth. So uh, I think you've done a fantastic job of just helping us better wrap our heads around, you know, what, what is actually going on in that global macro environment. And, and hopefully uh, people find this incredibly valuable. Well, thank you very much. And I have to say, you also do a great job of spreading the word in terms of uh, 
of of the technology of the of the whole crypto community. I, I think, in my view, you're my uh, top follower of this whole um, idea, and um, and I'm uh, you know I'm trying to educate myself. If you ever have anything to uh, please send my way, <laughs> that helps me to understand it better. Um, but um, I, I really appreciate your your thoughts on on the whole crypto markets as well. You're um, by far my top follower in terms of. Uh, of uh, of this whole market i, I really liked uh, uh following your thoughts so um uh thanks for that as well <laughs> i appreciate it when i come out there maybe i'll uh, i'll come meet up with you in person and give you a little bit of bitcoin so that we can uh, say you maybe you don't own a lot but then you own just a little bit <laughs> i would love to i would love to that would be incredible if we can uh, meet up and you pitch me bitcoin that would be awesome i would love to see that <laughs> i would love that no tavi look man i really appreciate it it's been incredibly valuable i've, I've learned a ton and, and uh, really enjoyed this conversation so thanks again for uh, for taking the time to do this thank you pomp i appreciate having me and um uh look forward to talking to you again for sure and then where can people find uh find you on the internet on twitter uh, anywhere else so I'm I'm be, become a lot more uh, active on Twitter, and I try to post publish charts and ideas li- almost every day. Uh, if I have the time here, I'll publish charts on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Tavi Costa, and um, I also kind of started a, a YouTube channel, uh, which is starting uh, not get traction. It's very low, but um, nothing compared to what you do. But it's uh, if you just type Tavi Costa on uh, YouTube, you'll find me. And um, Crestcat is. Um, is, is a hedge fund so we have a pretty open website we post publish most of our ideas and letters there uh, crestcat.net is the is the website and um, and yeah you can find a lot of ideas there as well awesome man well thank you again so much and uh, we'll have to do it again in the future thank you so much appreciate it are you curious about cryptocurrency and you don't know where to begin i've got a great way for you to try you can use Stormplay, a free and fun way to start earning in exchange for your time That's right, you don't necessarily have to make a financial investment to begin. You can simply download, register, and then discover these micro-tasks that they present you that meet your interest, and then you're rewarded with these Storm Bolts. The Bolts are then converted and can be withdrawn into your favorite cryptocurrency, including the Storm Token, Ethereum, or my favorite, Bitcoin. If you go and download the Storm Play app today, you can earn cryptocurrency rewards by playing new games and trying out cool new products. It's worth a try, and it's a great way to get started. Remember, go check out Storm Play in the App Store today. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.